0: Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Monica Ang, and today for Gerald McDonald. So, in 2005, when I was a Chicago Tribune reporter, I flew to Cairo to interview novelist Ala Alaswani. He wrote the bestseller *The Yacoubian Building* and was also a Chicago-trained dentist at the time. Hosni Mubarak was running Egypt, and Alaswani told me he hoped democracy would finally come to his country even if it meant that groups like the Muslim Brotherhood might come to power. Well, that did eventually happen. But Egypt's only democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi, didn't last long in the job. He died yesterday in a Cairo courtroom after six years of detention by Egypt's current dictator, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. With me to discuss Mohamed Morsi's legacy for Egypt and the Middle East is Stanford University historian Joel Bainin. Joel, thanks for joining
1: us. You're most welcome.
0: So can you give us a little background on how Mohamed Morsi got elected? A lot of us remember the Arab Spring, but maybe not Morsi's involvement.
1: In fact, Mohamed Morsi wasn't uh, very involved. Uh, He was... uh, a high-ranking bureaucrat in the Muslim Brothers, but very few people knew who he was before he was selected by the organization's Freedom and Justice Party to be their standard-bearer uh, in the June 2012 presidential election. Uh, the original candidate that the brothers wanted to nominate, Khairat shater who was much better known, was disqualified because he had spent time in prison. Um, so... Morsi rode the wave of the popularity of the Muslim brothers, but no one knew very much about him before he became president.
0: Okay, and then once he did become president, it didn't seem like he was that interested in governing Egypt. How, how did his one-year stint as president come to an
1: end? So you're right, uh, the Muslim brothers had been in opposition the entire uh, length of the existence of the organization. It was founded in 1928. um, And they had not given any thought whatsoever to what they would do uh, if they should actually come to power. Uh, So Morsi and the brothers uh, came to power. Uh, They had no plan. They certainly had no economic plan. And Egypt is really an economic basket case and and has been for some time. Uh, They had no experience in any of the kind of uh, negotiations and compromise that uh, politics uh, always involves. Um, And they expected uh, people simply to uh, follow their directions. And uh, people, both uh, bureaucrats inside the government and the population that didn't support them, uh, simply wouldn't have it. And uh, consequently, in November of 2012, Morsi issued a constitutional decree that exempted his uh, actions from judicial review uh, and essentially made him into a dictator. Uh, And that was the uh, beginning of uh, massive uh, public disaffection uh, from him.
0: And then uh, he ended up incarcerated,
1: Right. Uh, The military took advantage of the public uh, unhappiness with uh, Morsi and the Muslim brothers. Um, The uh, intelligence uh, authorities funded and organized uh, a movement which looked like a popular movement called Tamarud or Rebel. Uh, They held a massive demonstration on uh, June 30th, 2013 uh many of the people who attended that demonstration uh were uh, sincerely opposed to uh Muhammad morsi and, and uh sincere in their demand that he resign they didn't know that uh it was the military and the intelligence authorities uh, behind this demonstration um the army intervened and said that if Morsi didn't step down by July uh, 3rd, they would take things in hand. He didn't resign, and there was a military coup, uh, which ultimately brought Egypt's current president, Abdel Fattah Sisi to power.
0: So Egypt's been ruled by mostly secular governments since declaring independence from uh, Britain 100 years ago. Why have these Islamist movements like Morsi's Muslim Brotherhood stuck around?
1: So in Egypt and many other countries in the Middle East and beyond, the notion that politics is divided between secularists and Islamists uh, should should be re-examined. Um, Hosni Mubarak, the president who uh, came to office in 1981 and was ousted in February of 2011, um, was nominally a secularist, also a military man, but the Egyptian government throughout his rule and even under the rule of his predecessor, Anwar Sadat, uh, was always uh, playing re- the religious card, pitting Muslims against cops and uh, engaging in uh, Islamic rhetoric to uh, b- broaden its base and win popular approval. Um, the Muslim brothers... Um, had a very different approach to Islamic politics. And we can say that they definitely believed in what they were were saying. They weren't simply manipulating people. Um, And they were popular for two reasons. Uh, One, um, Islam is like motherhood and apple pie in in a country like Egypt. Everyone who is a Muslim uh, said, yeah, yeah, Islam is a good thing. And two, all throughout uh, the Mubarak era, the Muslim brothers were the principal opposition force. So th- there were many demonstrations, beginning with uh, solidarity demonstrations with uh, the Second Palestinian Intifada in 2000, and people were arrested. And every time uh, protesters were arrested, uh, it would be the Muslim brothers who Uh, were the primary people who were rounded up and went to jail. There were others as well, including even uh, uh, sharp opponents of the Muslim brothers who were arrested and and went to jail. But the brothers took the brunt of the repression. Um, The regime from time to time rounded up leading brothers uh, and arrested them and uh, tortured them. Uh, So uh, the brothers had the status of the main opposition to uh, Hosni Mubarak and and his regime, uh, the other progressive left forces were not well known, not as well organized. The Brothers have had, well, had until they were made illegal in Egypt and went underground, a large uh, apparatus. Uh, healthcare clinics, daycare centers in many, many mosques. So they were known and they delivered public services that people needed and that the government no longer delivered. Uh, And that was the base of their popularity.
0: I'm talking to Joel Bainan. He's a professor emeritus of Middle Eastern history at Stanford. In a few minutes, we'll talk about how some believe the city of Chicago is tearing down healthy trees at an alarming clip. So, Professor Bainan, um, I, I imagine that the Muslim brother, Brotherhood is not going to be happy about this. Some are calling this an assassination. What is the relationship between Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood and the Brotherhood in other countries?
1: the Brotherhood has long been uh, an organization with international connections. So there are two kinds of connections. There are actual branches of the Muslim Brotherhood in countries like Kuwait uh, and Jordan. Uh, There are political parties that are very similar to the Muslim Brotherhood, even if they are not publicly connected to them. Uh, In Turkey, the ruling party, the Justice and Development Party uh, is close to the Muslim brothers. In Morocco, um, the largest party is also called the Justice and Development Party. They are close to the brothers. Um, In uh, Tunisia, the Anahda party Uh, even though it's taken some distance from the brothers in recent years, is generally thought to be uh, close to them. Uh, So the brothers have connections throughout the Arab world and and beyond. Um, And uh, for that reason, despite the fact that they have been made illegal in Egypt, despite the fact that they've been declared a terrorist organization in Egypt. Uh, We can expect that they aren't going away altogether. Uh, When conditions ease up, uh, they will uh, more likely than not come back uh, in Egypt. On the other hand, uh, many people who voted for Morsi simply because he was the appeared to be the more democratically inclined candidate for president in the uh, 2012 uh, runoff. There were a lot of candidates in the first round, but it was only him and the candidate of the army in the second round. So people who uh, were not Muslim brothers at all voted for him. That probably wouldn't happen again.
0: Joel Bainan is Professor Emeritus of Middle Eastern History at Stanford University. Joel, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Mohammed Marcy today. Thank you. up in a few minutes on WBEZ, we'll hear about a concerning trend where the city's cutting down old-growth trees. I'm Monica Eng, and you've been listening to Worldview. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Monica Ang, sitting in for Jerome McDonald. And last month, I did a story for WBEZ's Curious City on how well Chicago has lived up to the 2020 climate goals set by the daily administration. One of those goals was to plant a million trees. But the city didn't quite get there. Instead, it planted a little over 100,000. And recent data shows that the city's been actually losing about 8,900 a year. Some of this, of course, is due to the emerald ash borer problem, but critics are increasingly charging that perfectly healthy trees are also being cut down, and others are violating city ordinances on tree planting. One of the most prominent tree removals included cutting down 10 trees on a single edgewater block over the weekend. The city said it was for water main replacement work. And here are some residents talking to ABC7 about it.
2: These are 100-year-old trees. They're beautiful trees. They're not going to be replaced in my lifetime. Maybe in theirs, if they're lucky. It's a bait and switch, and it's not OK. I understand
0: that the water main and the sewage needs to be replaced, but at least tell us the truth as opposed to undercover. Of, you know, early morning coming and getting rid of all these old growth trees. It's just not okay. These residents live in the 40th Ward, where longtime alderman Pat O'Connor was unseated by newcomer Andre Vasquez in the spring. And he said he learned about the trees at the same time as his constituents.
3: Yeah, so I heard it when I had neighbors calling me the morning of. What I believe may have happened is that some of this stuff gets decided. Way beforehand, so my predecessor might have gotten the notice. And when the election went the way it did and there was a transition, we did not receive notice in advance about what was coming. These
0: incidents of cutting down several old growth trees at a time are increasingly common in Chicago. That's according to former Chicago Environment Commissioner Suzanne Malik McKenna, who recently talked to me.
2: Well, I've been concerned about tree removals, period, and the lack of tree planting. But recently, I've learned of some construction happening across the city to work on our water line. And my understanding, and I've actually gone out and see it for myself, is that the contracts and the staff of Department of Water Management are carrying out this work in a way that is unnecessarily damaging not only the trees, but curbs and parkways, and even removing a lot of trees as part of it, and that does not need to be happening. There are a range of ways in an engineering perspective that you can take a look at how this construction can be done, and it's not that difficult to come up with a variety of design answers to do this to have the least amount of impact. An issue is water and sewer lines and how close they are, but the most important thing is to find where the residential water line is, right, that goes into people's homes. Based on where that is, they could use a range of different design solutions to reduce the impact and damage of tree roots or even removal of tree roots.
0: Malik McKenna says she's heard that this recent resumption in tree cutting was done with the blessing of Lori Lightfoot's office. So WBEZ called up the mayor's office for a confirmation. At airtime, we still hadn't heard back. But here's what Lightfoot told me when she was still a candidate and discussing her environmental platform.
4: The city of Chicago has advocated its responsibility to not only be a city and state, but also a regional leader on a range of environmental issues. Its role really dissipated substantially when the city disbanded the Department of Environment. And I think it's important for us to reclaim that ground.
0: We invited the Department of Water Management to come on the show today and talk about its practice of removing old-growth trees during main work, but they declined. They did, however, offer this statement. The Department of Water Management does everything possible to save trees when performing work on water infrastructure. We estimate the number of trees that may need to be removed on a project following the IEPA procedural and environmental rules that apply to underground utility separation that can include tree roots. The final determination on the number of trees to be removed can only be made during excavation. It further said it, quote, works closely with aldermanic offices to keep them updated on the elements of all projects in their wards, including tree removal, unquote. That's not exactly the experience that Alderman Vasquez had, but the department did say they sent a note to his predecessor, Pat O'Connor, about the tree removal in December 2018. So here to talk to us about uh, trees and tree removal is Michael Dugan, who is the director of forestry at the Chicago Conservation Group Openlands. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So uh, you heard the city's statement that it does everything possible to save trees when performing this work. Um, what, what have uh, folks you've been talking to seen, tree keepers?
3: Yeah, at Open Lands, we're always disappointed when we hear of live and healthy trees being removed. Um,
0: and, and and I know that you help people learn how to advocate um, if, you know, I, I understand there were a bunch of tree, cur- tree keepers on this block. What are some of the things that they can be taught in terms of how to advocate for the trees in their area?
3: Yes, we have our volunteer tree keepers. Some of them were on that block of the removal that happened over the weekend. Um, and through the tree keepers course, they learn how to advocate for trees by being able to explain the benefits that we get, especially from these large trees.
0: And what are some of those benefits? I mean, why, why would we want to keep around old growth trees in Chicago?
3: Well, the larger the tree, the more benefits we get, such as removing air pollution, um, managing our, our stormwater, um, slowing down our large uh, rain events.
0: And, and canopy, I would imagine, would help with heat islands in the city as well. Yeah, exactly. And I should note that Suzanne Malik McKenna, who's the former commissioner of the environment, actually started Tree Keepers in the '90s. She says that that uh, that you've trained more than two thousand citizens of Chicago to plant and care for trees.
3: Yeah, it's cracked over over two thousand. We offer the course generally three times a year um, in the city and, and even in the region.
0: Now, what we sometimes hear is, oh, you know, I'm sorry, we've got to cut down these trees, but we're going to replace them with new trees. What are the differences between, let's say, a two-year-old sapling and a 100-year-old tree in terms of uh, carbon sequestration, pulling carbon from the air, um, in terms of the roots, in terms of, of soaking up groundwater?
3: Right. As uh, As trees grow, we do see those increased benefits. So the larger the canopy, which is the, the branches and, and the leaves of the tree, the larger that they can grow and span out, the more rainwater that they can intercept and slow down to keep them out of our stormwater systems to make sure that we We've don't have all these, these
0: floods this yes, year.
3: exactly, these combined sewer um, overflows and uh, getting uh, contaminants into our, our waterways um, and the, the larger the root system that they, they can have to help soak up that water.
0: Another reason that uh, Suzanne Malik-McKenna said we've been losing trees is because of um, something called the Landscape Ordinance, which uh, which requires uh, certain tree planting during development. And she says it simply has not been that well enforced lately. Here's, here's what she told me.
2: So the Landscape Ordinance is super important because it is making sure that not only trees that have been removed are replaced, but where there are new opportunities to plant trees based on construction, whether on sidewalks or planters or even parking lots to break up the heat uh, are being done. As originally written, uh, the landscape ordinance um, had, for instance, the Bureau of Forestry go out and do a final inspection. That inspection then releases uh, the bonds that are put in place for the construction. Um, and that, that inspection is many different things, but includes the trees. In the early 2000s, That was handed off to department of construction and permits and eventually department of buildings so there was some inspection being done but less and less with people who are knowledgeable about this and then just recently in the past year or so uh, it's now turned into a self-certification program so no one inspects it at all as a result Trees are not only not being planted, but there's also requirement for contractors to keep them alive for the first year, and that's not happening at all. So whether either A, they're not even being planted, uh, or B, even if they are planted, they're not being maintained, nobody's mind in the shop. Nobody's making sure that our trees are being planted and cared for as required in ordinance.
0: So that was uh, former Commissioner of the Environment, Suzanne Malik McKenna, uh, making some pretty uh, pretty serious allegations there about lack of enforcement of the landscape ordinance. And uh, you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Monica Eng, talking to Michael Dugan, Director of Forestry at the Chicago Conservation Group Open Lands. In a few minutes on WBEZ, we'll talk about how farmers markets have been slowly losing some of their ground in Chicago. So, Michael, um, I also heard from someone in your organization about this unwritten rule under the Daly administration that each alderman could cut down just twenty trees per ward per year, um, and that was a sort of unwritten rule that that no one seems to be paying attention to anymore. Have Have you heard about you know any increases in that?
3: I have not heard any increases, but I think it's important to note that. Our urban forest is, is comprised of many different land managers and, and different land types. We have private landowners with trees. We have our, our parkways with trees, our parks. Um, and it really does take full cooperation with everyone to make sure that we are keeping live and healthy trees um, on our land for the public benefit.
0: And when they are diseased with emerald ash borer, what's the best way to handle that? And how has the city been doing that?
3: Yeah, at the, the sort of the scale that the emerald ash Borers has hit the city at that, so many trees over so many areas, it's, it is removal and, and planting. But um, as a homeowner, if you had an ash tree on your, on your property and you wish to save that, especially some of these large, beautiful ash trees that really give us that beautiful fall color, um, there are treatments that you can, can take to prolong the life of the tree.
0: And so if people want to learn more about protecting trees, want to learn more about becoming treekeepers, or if they're just concerned that there's some main work being done on their block and that uh, some of their trees may be in danger, uh, where should they reach out to?
3: Make sure you go to openlands.org slash trees. Um, they can find us there and they can learn more about the tree keepers course. They can also learn about how to get more trees into their neighborhood. We do offer community tree planting grants. We've planted over 6,000 trees the past six years, all with volunteers on the public right away.
0: Well, here at WBZ, we'll be keeping an eye on this issue. Michael Dugan is the director of forestry at the Chicago Conservation Group Openlands. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break on WBZ, farmers' markets aren't as popular as they were just a few years ago. The city lost five farmers' markets this year alone. We'll hear about what one Lincoln Park market is doing to try to counter that trend. I'm Monica Eng, and you've been listening to Worldview. This is Worldview on WBZ. I'm Monica Eng in for Gerald McDonald. Now, five years ago, farmers markets were still all the rage in Chicago. But as locally grown organic products started to get more accessible in neighborhood grocery stores, Chicagoans have stopped going to the markets at the numbers they used to. Five Chicago markets have closed in the last year, partially as a result. But the green city market in Lincoln Park is still going strong and trying to change things by implementing a few new strategies to bring customers back. Executive Director Melissa Flynn is here to talk to me about the green city market's efforts, its 20th anniversary, and the evolving world of farmers markets in Chicago. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So, as someone who has followed farmers markets and food news for a long time, I noticed this myself. Fewer people, even me, um, were going to the markets every week. Uh, we were even at the same event at Uncommon Ground where we had a long talk about the contraction of a sister trend, a community supported agriculture. So, what do you think is happening here? Sure. So there's a
5: lot of things going on. So yes, some markets have gone away. But we also saw almost an oversaturation of markets, not across the country, but in certain areas. So one area may have way too many where other areas just need markets. And so there is a little bit of just shifting where markets are. And so we see a little bit of that. And then there is the convenience of just going to your grocery store. But we know from shopping farmers markets that it's not the same. And so really going to the market and having that experience and getting to know your neighbors and being able to talk to the farmer and find out how your food was grown, it changes everything.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can say so. How did you grow this? And you know, what's 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 good this week? Yes. You know, how is the weather affecting things? And and I've heard that like Peapod and the Amazonification of people mm-hmm. uh, grocery shopping, these things all work into it. Um, and you know, I have to admit it. I, I'm going to be killed for saying this, but <laughs> I, I dropped my CSA. I just I couldn't keep up, and I, I even I dropped my imperfect produce too mm-hmm. because I just uh, I wanted to be able to really pick and choose. At my own pace. And farmers markets allow you to do that. But you know, some people had been, um, I think I read, showing up at the farmers market, buying a scone and a coffee, posing for their Insta selfie, and then just taking off. I mean, have, have the farmers seen that? Like people aren't buying quite as much? It depends on
5: the day. And yes, we certainly see people who come for their scone and coffee. But (laughs) hey, come back. While you're walking out, buy lettuce. (laughs) So we really want to make sure markets are really welcoming. So if that's your first intersection or interaction with us, great. Come and observe and see what's going on. And then come back because the food is going to be so much better than you can get at a grocery store. So we welcome everybody to come to the market. We just say, hey, if you only bought one thing next week, buy two come back. We want people to know that shopping from a farmer's market is easy. It's fun. There's social interaction in like real life social interaction. And that, again, like you were saying, you can talk to the farmers. So right now with sort of the crazy weather we've been having, things are coming in a little bit more slowly or different than we may expect. But there's also still full tables at the market, so it might be an opportunity to talk to your market and to your farmer and say, okay, what is your favorite thing in season right now? What should I do with kohlrabi?
0: And it's fun because you get to try something new. Well, speaking of that, you guys have some cool new features this year. And one of them actually does allow you to talk to an expert about how to use uh, kohlrabi <laughs> or ramps, as the case may be. Um, and it's, it's called the Ask the Chef tent with Lisa Kalabokas, at least when I was there. And um, I actually talked to her on, on a visit, and here's here's how it went. All right. So, Lisa, I'm going to give you a challenge that I bet you're up to because I just heard you talking to someone. Everybody likes to say, oh, yeah, I went to the early markets. I got ramps. Then they get home and they're like, what the heck am I supposed to do with these? Easiest recipe with ramps. Easiest recipe with ramps. Well, I would say I love a really
5: uh, beautiful recipe. It's like five ingredients, olive oil, Parmesan, salt, pepper, ramps. Okay, six, a little bit of green garlic. And that's a really lovely pesto that you can either keep in your fridge with a like about an inch of oil over the top of it so it mitigates any um, moisture getting in there, and it'll last for about two weeks. Or you could always throw it in the freezer and put it in like an ice cube tray so that you have little portions. And then you have ramp pesto all throughout the season. So I love that recipe.
0: So that was the wonderful Lisa Kalabokas giving me tips on how to use my ramps. Are ramps still on the table or what's out these days? So ramps have come and gone already. So right now we're in the final couple weeks of
5: asparagus and rhubarb. And then coming in, yay, is strawberries just came in mm. a week or so late, depending on where they came from, if it was an Illinois farmer or a Michigan farmer. And then we have peas coming in. We saw the first sugar snap peas last week. We've got broccoli coming in and some incredible lettuce and mesclun, just lots of stuff to try this time of
0: year. Terrific. Um, you're listening to WBEZ. Uh, you're listening to Worldview on WBZ. I'm Monica Eng. With me is Melissa Flynn from the Green City Market. In a few minutes on WBZ, we'll talk about how Urban Gardening Awards are basically taking off in Chicago, so stay tuned for that. So um, we, we talked a bit about this, this Ask a Chef, but there are some other things that are that are drawing people to the market, special items these days. Sure. So we want to make sure it's easy and convenient. So we have um,
5: kids programming every market day. So we have our Club Sprouts where kids can try stuff and do a farm-to-table activity. We have our 5,000-square-foot teaching garden and our Lincoln Park Market. And we've launched an app so that if you don't want to be there at the Crack of Dawn to get your favorite food fruits and vegetables. You can order it on your app and you pay for it ahead of time. And then you just come to the market at your leisure and pick it up right from the market. So we want to meet people with where they are. Wow. What is that app called?
0: Green City Market. <laughs> wow. Um, now, uh, tell me, so, so how would that work? You would just be like, okay, it's 6 a.m. or you do it the night before? You or? do it the
5: night before. So on it, again, we try to keep it super simple. The, um, it has our farmers listed, any of the farmers that are participating, and they will have deadlines that you have to order by, but it's usually the day before, and then they'll bring the mar- the products right to market.
0: And I understand you even have a compost program where people can bring their compost. Tell me how that works.
5: Sure. So you can bring your compost every market day. It's um, $3 for a five-gallon bucket. And last year, that helped us compost over 10,000 pounds of food waste that would normally go to landfill. So it's been a huge success.
0: And so does okay, so I've got like a whole bunch of eggshells mm-hmm. and coffee grounds and potato peelings. And I bring them in a bucket, to the market, then dump them in another bucket?
5: Yep. So we'll have um, big compost bins, and then our hauler, Healthy Soils, takes it away. They actually have their worms do what worms do, and then they
0: bring it back to market, and we sell that finished compost. Wow. So you're not going to be surprised by this quote that I hear all the time. Well, you know, farmers' markets, they're so expensive. How can I afford these... But um, you have a program where, let's say you get SNAP benefits, Mm -hmm. you can double those benefits. How does that work?
5: Absolutely. We want all Chicagoans to have access to great food. So we accept SNAP, which is formerly food stamps, and we match it dollar for dollar up to $15 per market day, every market. And we're actually introducing that in some of the schools that we work with because we teach edible education in schools. And so we piloted a program this year where the families at that school can then order our farmers food right at school. We'll match link and we'll bring the product right to school because we want to make sure the barrier of access is not a situation that any of our families have to
0: face. Wow, that's fantastic. And let's say those um, who aren't on SNAP, what are some of your best tips for you know, really making your dollar stretch at the farmer's market?
5: Sure. I mean, the easiest thing is you buy what you want and you buy what you're going to use. So the average American wastes over $1,500 worth of food per year. So you don't have to buy in bulk at a farmer's market. You can find out how to use it and that way you're not wasting. So that's number one, the best way.
2: Mm -hmm. stretch your dollars by not wasting food. Only what you're going to
5: cook that week. Absolutely. And because things come in in season, it's going to be the best product. You're not going to need necessarily as much to flavor things up. So you can make really simple recipes that stretch. So for example, if you're buying beans from one of our vendors, buying a bag of beans is really very economical, and that stretches into a number of meals versus buying a can of beans from the grocery store.
0: And I'd like to offer my own tip, which is when you get home from the market, have your colanders, have your cutting boards, ready to go so that you you can prep it, not berries, because berries you should not wash until the last minute. Absolutely. But you can prep it so that, you know, when it's time to cook that cauliflower or that rhubarb, mm-hmm. it's all ready to go. And you're not like, oh boy, I'm really tired after a day's work. That's a great tip. And we're going to actually
5: talk about how to store some of your greens today in our newsletter.
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, one of the farmers that the Tribune talked to from Cloak Farm said that, you know, you know as, as the, these changes are happening in the market, they've had to diversify, grow some specialty stuff. How would you say that this has been affecting farmers? So the nice thing about
5: working with our farmers is they're adaptable, number one. So they are literally talking to the chefs every week. They're talking to the shoppers, finding out, oh, what would you like to see? Do you want to see a red basil tie as opposed to what we have here? And so they're able to adjust year over year to what people want. And so they really have to listen more than maybe a grocery store would. And they respond to that and they plant according to what their shoppers and chefs want to see.
0: So congratulations on your 20th year. And I know that one thing people always look forward to is the Green City Market barbecue. And those tickets go fast. Can you tell us what people will find there and how they can find those tickets?
5: Absolutely. You can find them on greencitymarket.org. It's July 18th at 4.30 p.m. And they will find over 100 chef and beverage purveyors cooking. And those chefs are using everything that's in season from our farmers. So it really highlights the best of the Midwest. And you will not leave hungry or thirsty. I promise.
0: And me, how
5: much are tickets? They are $125 for general admission, and they support all of our free education programs and the access programs that we do. Thanks so much. Melissa
0: Flynn is executive director of the Green City Market. Melissa, thank you for taking the time to talk about farmer's markets and Green City, and congratulations again on the 20th year. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. I'm in the mood
3: for
6: food. I'm in the mood. I'm in the mood for food. I'm in the mood for
4: food.
0: I'm in the mood for food too. This is Worldview on WBZ. I'm Monica Eng, in for Jerome McDonald. And if you're like me, your garden is probably freaking out right now. (laughs) It doesn't know if it's early summer or late fall or London or what. Um, Even though it's late June, you sit up nights wondering if you should go out and protect your tomatoes and basil and moringa plants. Um, But if you do worry about these things you have got a lot of company in Chicago's growing gardening community And if your garden is one of the special ones you might be in for an award That's where our next guests come in They're Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki co-hosts of the Mike Novak Show and founders of Chicago's Excellence in Gardening Awards Welcome
6: Thank Thank you. you It's great being here This is a big studio I'm not, I'm not used to studios that, that are of this size.
0: You guys are radio pros just in a smaller studio. Um, well, thank you for coming to our our cool studios on Navy Pier. Um, and so this Gardening Award, we're, we're saying it's the third year of it, but it's actually got some pretty deep roots in Chicago, so to speak. Yeah. Can, can you tell me about those Where's roots? the
6: rim shot? You, guys but, don't, you, but, got, you don't do that on public no, radio, do you? No, oh, okay. No, All right Sorry. <laughs> I, I should have brought one. Uh, yeah, it goes back a long way in the city of Chicago. Uh, under uh, previous mayors, uh, the two dailies, uh, the awards went back about 50 years. uh, And at that time, they were called the Mayor's Landscape Awards. Mm. And uh, then suddenly in 2011, after the 2011 awards, they ceased to exist, and nobody knows really why. Uh, And um, I... Was involved with them for several years i was a judge but you know i've been talking about gardening and the environment on chicago radio for 20 years and so i would get asked to be a judge and i would do that and i was always amazed at what people come up with in their own backyards and and their schools and their churches and their communities and uh uh and then when the awards ended i i thought well this isn't, isn't good. I mean, you've been talking about this on the show today. That the commitment of Chicagoans to their environment, and you, you mentioned trees and, and, and Green City Market. It's all of a piece. And people care about their environment, and they especially love their gardens. And I thought, well, this is doing them a disservice. Uh, I'll give you an example. My community did a community garden back in 2011, the very – Final uh, year of those awards that the city used to do, and we won a third place. You should have seen the kids. They took the award, the certificate, <laughs> and they passed it around their houses for everybody. Each kid would get a week that they would get to have the certificate and then pass it along to somebody else. This is the kind of reaction to these awards, and it it doesn't take a lot for a garden to be wonderful. So Peggy and I said, you know, we gotta we gotta bring this back. So we decided my show would uh, be a sponsor and Peggy's Magazine, Natural Awakening Chicago. And then we got a bunch of partners like the Shed Aquarium. We got the uh, Cook County Extension. Um, we got the Chicago Flower and Garden Show involved. Uh, now we have uh, the Forest Preserve District of Cook County that's a great partner. The Park Chicago District. Park District. Chicago Park District. Uh, and, and others. Um, and... Advocates we, for urban agriculture. Right. Wow, and, lots and, of partners. Yeah, we do. Um, Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, because I'm a columnist for Chicagoland Gardening Magazine.
0: The plugs are just everywhere. <laughs> uh,
6: I haven't even given to the frequency of my radio station yet, okay? Well, so, but
4: but it's, it's an alliance working together.
0: Yeah, well, and Peggy, we're, we're not just talking about the manicured lawns of the ladies who lunch. You guys are, are looking for all sorts of types of gardens, right? We've had container gardens, rooftop gardens,
4: a lot of backyard gardens, big and small. We put a special emphasis on sustainability and water usage and planting natives and pollinator-friendly gardens um, and mixing edibles, for example, in with the regular garden. So different ways of creativity, but also making your yard sustainable.
6: And one of the chief... Uh, things we want to do is is sh- uh, have the gardener talk to us. We want the gardeners to chat with us about their garden because the story and mm-hmm. the heart behind these gardens are what 's important to us. You mentioned the ladies who lunch, yeah, there are some really sp- fabulous gardens out there, and then there are some. That are fabulous because of who's in them and who's yeah, doing and the, the work. And
0: the why behind them. Well, yeah. tell me some of these stories. I was looking at some, and, and they're just they're fantastic.
6: Uh, okay, I'll go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll tell you one right now. Uh, one of the gardeners was a rooftop gardener in Chicago, downtown, not too far from here. Mm-hmm. And his name was uh, Maimon Gibson. And I say was because he died last year. And he had a done this for gardener. two years. He was a master gardener and a docent and loved to garden on his rooftop and it overlooked Navy Pier. And um, I went to his house. He died right around the time we were giving out the wards last year. Mm. And so I went to his house and talked to his wife and to his grandson and gave them the plaque and they were cleaning up the garden. Uh, it was a lovely garden. And he was beloved, and he was a wonderful master gardener, and he will be missed. But it that was just one of the stories mm-hmm. behind the gardens. I'm thinking of another one over at Prosser High
4: School, where they're involving both students in the garden and the community. They've got about 30 community gardens set up um, where a lot of the people in the neighborhood work multi-generations, and then they're bringing the students in, and they're pulling in permaculture, they've got chickens, they're bringing in goats, they're just incorporating everything into an urban farm, basically.
6: And one more, uh, a woman named Patricia Richardson Chandler. Uh, she uh, gardens on the 35th floor terrace of her high-rise, and she's a disabled veteran. She can't go out during the day because of a severe sun allergy from her time in Iraq. Wow. So she goes out at night. She gardens at night. And she has the most amazing garden up on the 35th floor. And she was a winner. She brought
4: most of that up herself with assistance.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBZ. I'm Monica Eng, talking with Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki, co-hosts of the Mike Novak Show and founders of the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Now, you mentioned the Prosser High School garden. Uh, Full disclosure, it's it's a dear friend of mine, Marnie Weir, is this incredible biology (laughs) teacher. And she decided to take this soccer field that wasn't being used. And she went through red tape after red tape after red tape to get two acres. And they've got people from the community. Mm-hmm. They teach biology classes. They teach history classes. They do experiments. They um, they grew corn and made la coche and had the Mexican-American families teach them how to grind the masa. I wow. mean, I just, you know, I was like in tears when I saw this garden. <laughs> and they had a big farm dinner there last summer. It's it's just incredible. And there are these little stories all over Chicago. And speaking of all over Chicago, you guys really aim to reach almost all of our wards. How many have you reached, and, and, and who do you still really want to reach out to?
4: In
6: two years, we've reached about 33 wards. Oh. Uh, we'd love to get all 50 involved about in.
4: About 60 neighborhoods and 33 wards.
6: Yeah, and we've given out more than 100. Awards in two years. Uh, the ceremony uh, last year we had at Garfield Park Conservatory and had 100. We, we, we sandwiched, jam-packed, <laughs> 150 people room. It's 150 people into the room, uh, Jensen room, and, uh, and we hope to have more this year. We're looking at a space right after we leave the show. We're going to look at a space for the awards uh, this year. Uh, And so I would tell people go to ChicagoGardeningAwards.org. All the information is there. We actually have uh, it in Spanish as well. So Mm -hmm. Spanish-speaking people can go and fill out a form. It's free. We're giving away stuff just for people who enter the awards. Can,
4: Can we drop more names? Uh, sure, but tell me about this free stuff that you're giving away Well, that's, that's what I it mean. Well, the, we well, the Metropolitan
6: names? Water Reclamation <laughs> District of Greater Chicago Has donated five rain barrels
0: I love rain barrels
6: uh, Yeah, and uh, so If you enter the awards All you got to do is enter You don't have to win anything You get put in a hat And we'll do a drawing mm. And five people will get a rain barrel Commissioner
0: Kim
4: de Boucle.
6: Right uh, uh, She
0: donated,
4: the,
6: yeah. the, she rain barrel, donated yes. the rain barrels And also now Why
0: are rain barrels You guys are greenies Why are rain barrels important?
6: Well, uh, well, not this year. Not, to, <laughs> you know, uh, well, you can
0: still store it for later water. But ride. you know,
6: if it's, we suddenly get a dry spell, mm-hmm. it, it helps. And uh, well, because it conserves water. Do we want the water going into our our sewers? Uh, you know, the uh, speaking of the MWRD, it's been amazing that we haven't had the discharge into our rivers, and that's because of, of what they're doing. But part of that is how do we keep the water. Out of those sewers, how do we get it to percolate back into the land or put it in a rain barrel?
0: And they, I, I'm told that that rainwater is better for your plants than chlorinated water mm-hmm. from your hose. Well,
6: you've got yeah, I've got chlorine, you've got uh, fluoride, you've got all kinds of stuff in there. When I water my indoor plants, I put it in a, a, a milk jug and let it gas off for 24 hours before I even apply it to my plants.
0: You did not know that tip. But Peggy,
4: you were going to say something? So there's one other. Everyone who enters is also getting a $15 gift certificate
0: from City Grange. Nice. Hey, we broadcast from there Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago after you guys did.
6: I know. I saw that. (laughs) And we had the nice weather. (laughs) Yes.
0: Speaking of weather, how has this year's weather affected these gardens that, that may want to nominate themselves, but they're like, nothing's growing. The sun won't come out.
6: I think they're all a little shy at the moment. It has been a tough year. Uh, tomatoes, uh, let me give you some more uh, gardening advice. If you've got tomatoes, <laughs> get them in the ground. It doesn't matter that it's cool. I mean, if you've got them in a pot, uh, it's go- they're going to do worse in the pot than really? they will in... Yeah, we had a tomato expert, uh, Craig LaHoulier, on the program a few weeks ago, and he said, we tend to coddle our tomatoes too much. Just, mm. just get them in the ground. I'm a tomato it's- coddler. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. too. And I stopped coddling them when he gave me that advice. He said, the only thing he worries about is freezing or frost. So other than that, they'll handle it. They will survive. Uh, But so we found a reluctance of people to get involved. And I think they're also intimidated uh, by the idea that they need to have a perfect garden. You do not need to have a perfect garden to enter. Just if you love your garden, that's Mm -hmm. a great garden. We want you to enter the contest. It's free and, and you might win stuff.
4: Yeah. And you'll learn a lot from the judges too.
6: Yeah.
0: So how do people listen to the Mike Novak show? <laughs> uh,
4: no.
0: I mean, Where's no. our dinger when we need it? Uh, <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs>
0: that came uh, That came from the producers. I've been on the show, so I know. But for everyone else, not for, for the very few people who don't know.
6: See, I, I sit here for 10 minutes and I've <laughs> infected you guys already. All right? You're doing rim shots and stuff. Um, you can listen on 1590 WCGO, also 95.9, Sunday mornings 9 to 11, And uh, we talk uh, gardening, Mm -hmm. the environment, green living, sustainability, you know, basically the stuff you do, Monica, here. And you can stream it live. In fact, Monica has been on the show a number of times. Yes, But
4: you can stream live from uh, MikeNovak.net. You can listen on TuneIn and Stitcher
6: and, of course, podcasts and Facebook Live. And just so people know... M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K dot net.
0: There we go. And, you know, speaking of when I was on, I was talking about the history of urban agriculture mm-hmm. in Chicago and how we were this huge celery capital. Right. Yeah. This big row, this flower capital. We, um, you know, Budlong Woods was a pickle farm. We had celery farms <laughs> in Lakeview. There was a huge— It sounds like
6: an insult somehow.
0: <laughs> there was a huge flower industry right around uh, Roseland Cemetery. Right. Um, And then, of course, the onion sets. Often the the you remember all of that. Yeah, you know these stories. They just these curious city stories just stick in my mind. (laughs) I still have the view of that postcard of the giant celery on
4: the train. Yes, right.
6: I love that on the flatbed car.
0: And so Chicago's got this very long gardening and agricultural history that you guys are helping celebrate with the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Now, remind us one more time what the time frame is so people do not lose out on this. Well, we
6: didn't say it, but the uh, we're accepting entries uh, through July 7th. And we know it's been a slow start, and we just encourage people, look, your garden it probably looks great. It's good, It looks lush, if nothing else, mm-hmm. because of all the rain we've had and cool weather. Uh, and we just really encourage people to get over your shyness, enter the contest. You're going to find it so... Um, Encouraging And that's not the word Inspiring
4: Fulfilling and inspiring Yeah Uh,
6: And go to ChicagoGardeningAwards.org Did you want to see something, Peg?
4: I was going to add When the award ceremony Comes up in the fall All the gardeners get together And talk and swap stories And everyone's just so inspired At that point And so happy That they entered
0: Maybe they even have some uh, some tomatoes to share at the end of <laughs> We'll do a tomato swap. Not this year. <laughs> well, Peggy Amalecki and Mike Novak, they are the co founders of Chicago's Excellence in Gardening Awards, the co hosts of the Mike Novak Show. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank, Thank you. you. This show is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Monica Ang in for Jerome McDonnell and you've been listening to Worldview from 91.5 WBEZ.